Hey everybody, welcome back to the 26th episode of Open Source for Business, brought to you by Open Teams. My name is Henry Badgery, and today I talked with Toby Langle, the founder of Unlock Open. Unlock Open helps companies understand and also leverage open source software to recruit, retain, and foster top software engineering talent. In this podcast, Toby dived deep into open source contribution policy best practices. And for those listening, you're probably thinking, I already have an open source contribution policy, but I promise you, you will learn a lot from this podcast about how you can make yours better. Now, whether you're a user, developer, manager, or just curious about the industry, open source is the place to find the information, news, training, and support that you need to thrive with open source software. Now that the introductions are out of the way, let's jump into this episode. All right, Toby, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited to be talking about um, what we're going to be talking about today. So am I. I've definitely been looking forward to it. And so to kick it off, you are currently the founder of Unlock Open, which helps companies to understand and leverage open source uh, for many different reasons to help recruit, retain, but also to foster us software engineering talent. But before Unlock Open, you worked at a number of large tech companies such as Facebook, Mozilla, Google, Intel, just to name a few. So can you walk me through your journey into open source so that we can get a better idea of how you actually got here today? Yeah, sure. I mean, just to be specific, most of the companies that you cited there were actually clients of mine as part of my um, company, uh, like consulting firm, which is called Unlock Open. Um, I was, though, a full-time employee at Facebook for a few years in um, uh, early uh, 2010. Um, I came to open source really completely by accident. Um, I'm a musician by trade. Uh, so I was uh, in a band that was touring um, Italy um, and, and part of Eastern Europe uh, now a long time ago. Um, and we sort of all pulled our talents together to do them, all of the other sort of like business work that happens around the band. And I had a brother that was computer savvy. I wasn't, right? And so he sort of like taught me how to build a website using, uh, back then it was PHP and MySQL, um, you know, the, uh, the, the <laughs> LAMP stack, I think it was called back then, the LAMP stack, yeah. Um, and so I, I, I just like, it really clicked. I, I just loved it. I had been like, um, um, done physics and, and math in, in, in high school. And so it was just like really my thing. Um, and so I built this website for our band, was a, a shop where you could order our CD. And, and then sort of like every musician in the city kind of came to me and said, um, your, your website is really nice. Like, did you do that? Could you do one for us? Right. And as folks that uh, have um, no musicians or have tried that route, like actually making earning a living out of playing music is very, very difficult. Um, and so, you know, that felt like an awesome sort of like side gig that could maybe possibly make me enough money to sort of live. Um, and I got, you know, really into the whole thing. We even like tried to start a, a startup with my brother back then on, on, on you know, so, sort of that um, topic. Um, and it's very shortly after that, or roughly at that time, uh, Ruby on Rails came along, right? And it was essentially sort of like, everything that we had had to set up to be able to do that using like php was suddenly like there right um and as part of ruby on rails there was a lot of javascript going on and suddenly you could like you know 
pull something into your cart, like drag and drop on in the browser. It was just like pure magic to me. And it was magic. Just totally <laughs> like, you know, in love with the whole thing. So I started being very involved with the prototype JavaScript project and sort of like really learned uh, JavaScript by um, going through the source code because there was no documentation, nothing, right? To understand what was going on. And then started actually uh, in a project with a few folks that doc that was documenting the project, right? Um, and then that turned into being uh, increasingly involved, contributing to the project itself um, and to the um, effects library that was on top. And finally becoming a maintainer of, of the prototype JavaScript library uh, framework, I think it was called back then, which for those that uh, are, haven't started in tech as long as I, I had, like as long as ago as I have, um, like the prototype JavaScript library was really the sort of like the, the, the first foray into what became web um, 2.0. Um, and it was really the library that sort of inspired jQuery, but didn't have its success at all for reasons that are like interesting to discuss. Um, um, but uh, it was like a big deal, right? So um, uh, that got me um, a consulting gigs um, was a whole bunch of tech companies that were like moving into that space, including Google uh, that I helped was a number of uh, projects at that time that ended up paving the way for ECMAScript uh, sort of like the rebirth of JavaScript and ECMAScript 5 and, and beyond. Um, so yeah, it's sort of like this kind of weird uh, journey that you probably probably is way harder to do now um, because you know the, the um, ecosystem has changed. It has industrialized quite a bit, um, and there, everything is more organized, more layered. I mean, back then, you know, you would do design and UX, and uh, uh, you know, uh, code the, the underlying library and also code the, the the app itself and do a bit of rails and, and so it was kind of like full stack but not the way it smells today right um so it was a very different a very different times clearly um but yeah so that's kind of like i i really ended up in open source um like that um and then what happened is um uh facebook um uh hired me because they were looking for someone that knew the open source space well and knew the web standard space well, which I had sort of gotten into a bit, um, but wasn't, didn't have like a classical standards background. And so I did standards for Facebook, um, then actually um, uh, became a W3C fellow on, um, on behalf of Facebook uh, to start the project that is now known as Web Platform Tests. Um, which is essentially the, this huge uh, suite of tests that makes sure that all the different browsers actually um, support the specs in the same way, sort of like pass the same test. Um, and then I moved into really like deeper into the web standards rabbit hole, all the way into actually editing the spec of the language in which you define APIs that then get implemented by browsers. So, you know, like really deep, deep down in that rabbit hole. Um, and after that, there was a sort of like, um, it's a small community, right? It's essentially web browsers. And I wanted to sort of um, broaden a bit on my client base. And um, I also was interested to sort of like take a bit of a step back. And so I really moved into more of a um, uh, strategy role in open source and in standards, both sort of like interlinked very often. Uh, you have open source projects that are implementation of standards. You have standards that are in increasingly built with open source um, 
technology and techniques and practices. Um, and so, yeah, essentially right now I really focus more on helping organizations sort of like figure out um, these open spaces, essentially, um, and, and leverage them um, in ways that are good for their businesses, um, but also in ways that are just good practices and a great way of, of um, fostering um, happy engineers, um, uh, folks that are, that are able to work um, in, in a way that um, I like working, essentially, where there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, freedom as to where in the stack you're operating uh, when. Um, and where you can always really focus on um, doing the right thing at the time where it makes sense rather than having to do lots of paperwork uh, to, to get to the same, uh, to the same place in, uh, you know, six, six, six weeks later at best. Sorry, that was okay. a super long intro. No, not at all. I think it's, it's so fascinating and interesting. I haven't heard anyone who's rocked their way into open source. Um, it's, it's, it's from, I, I was a jazz drummer. It's you were a ja jazz my way into it. Oh, uh, you worse. jazzed your way into it. <laughs> Well, that's really interesting. And then you went from, yeah, building websites to almost a website entrepreneur to getting involved with open source communities and actually working within companies who were using open source, which is really the topic of this podcast. And so rather than ask broad, broad questions to you today, uh, things like, um, what's the business case of contributing to open source, which I know you have a lot of information on, or um, how can you, it be used to recruit top software engineering talent? I kind of see those questions as, as things that people have heard a lot, uh, at least in this podcast, we've heard it a lot. And the answers can be found on the internet a lot easier. And so I thought we'd focus this episode really on diving deep, you're def something you're definitely an expert in, and that is open source software contribution policies. So to begin, what is an open source contribution policy? So yeah, I, I think uh, before I actually answer your question, which is a great question, uh, I just want to make a quick point to sort of like, uh, you know, underline what it is that you're saying. Um, there, there is a, a lot of understanding now uh, across the industry that um, open source is good for you, right? Not only good for the community, but also good for the business. Um, and yet, um, not that many companies actually do do it properly, right? And... Um, um, one of the, one of the ways that you actually do it properly is understand the how of doing it properly. And, and actually an open source contribution and policy is a great way to actually implement this properly. Right? So, um, what is an open source contribution policy? Well, as you're probably aware, um, and as you, our listeners here are probably aware, um, a lot of um, the value that you bring to a company as an employee is in um, the intellectual property, IP, as it's often called, um, that you create for that company. I mean, that, that's essentially true of white collar jobs, right? But, uh, but, but you know, specifically for software engineering, uh, really that's what you're hired for, right? The intellectual, pro the code that you write is an intellectual property that belongs to the company. And um, in general, um, uh, the, you know, the, the basic sort of assumption is that intellectual property is more valuable when you keep it for yourself. It's like, that's a competitive advantage. 
in practice, open source has shown for a very long time that that is not always um, the case. Um, and that there are scenarios where actually sharing some of that open source, uh, sorry, some, some of that intellectual property and then turning it into open source is more valuable than keeping it to you for yourself. So um, what an open source contribution policy actually does is sort of determine when that's the case and when um, your engineers, if you're um, an engineering manager or own a company, um, when your engineers um, should um, be or could be contributing to open source and when they're, um, they, sh they shouldn't. And it also, um, uh, open, source open source policies in general also handle how you would um, use open source and comply to the requirements of using open source for your own products. So it's really kind of like, uh, you know, IO in and out of open source and, and, and sort of like a document that describes that. And in practice, those documents are kind of like, you know, treated as sort of like legalese that like sits in a corner that don't, no one really wants to touch, but they're really critical in how they can help enable the right kind of culture that you want in your company. Um, and so that's actually why I pay particular attention to them. In general, like I've seen in tech that um, areas, um, there's there, there are some areas that are not given the kind of attention that they really deserve. And that sort of like has a, a lot of influence on uh, company culture and as a result, engineering, uh, engineer well-being. And so really focusing on those points, I think, is, is, is kind of uh, really important. So short answer is the open source contribution policy will determine how you can use software, but mostly uh, how you can contribute back to it. Okay, and what companies or which companies should have an open source software contribution strategy? Is it is it any or policy? Sorry, is it anyone or is it larger companies that are contributing every day to open source? They're kind of a, a bucket that these companies fall into. So that's that's a great question too. Um, in, in general, everyone has an open source contribution policy, right? Uh, everyone, um, just some companies actually uh, go to the trouble of writing it down and making it transparent and clear to everyone. But those that don't write it down still have rules. I mean, essentially, um, those rules are tied to your work contract if you're an um, employee of a, of a company. And those work contracts, depending on where you live, uh, include um, the, the, all of the intellectual property that you produce maybe on your work laptop or maybe all the time. There are lots of countries or states in the U.S., where whatever you do uh, for a company, even if it's um, asleep, you dream about this great idea, technically <laughs> it belongs to the company. Um, so in essence, if you don't have a written contribution, open source contribution policy, you have an unwritten open source contribution policy. And that isn't great because it means that it's not clear to engineers what exactly they're allowed to do or not. It's not clear to management who can do what. And so it sort of like it creates um, situations where um, there are um, expectations that are unclear um, and people make mistakes or people don't do the right thing uh, because they just don't know what to do. So um, everyone has a policy. Some people write it down and you probably should do that too, regardless of your size. A good policy can be like a paragraph and a half. Like, it, you know, it's, it's, it can be really simple. Um, Buffer, the um, company that uh, helps you sort of like buffer your tweets, 
um, yep. has um, open source their open source contribution policy. Um, and uh, like, I think it's like, yeah, a page, right? It essentially says like, contribute to, uh, I, I mean, I can't remember the specifics, but basically you can contribute to um, software if it helps um, the company uh that uses those licenses if you have a doubt go talk to like you know this person um and whatever you do on your own time as long as it's not uh, competing against what it is that we do you're good something of that nature right it, you know it's like five lines right it doesn't have to be like uh you know this um 20 page like terms of service was like lots of uh you know uppercase words and like all you know uppercase like uh um, things at the bottom of, of the page and like tiny text and all of the weirdness that you find in sort of like legacy docs it can be like really short. Okay, that's really useful. That comparison, I guess, that the example of what what is a good open source contribution strategy, something that is small, concise, and really to the point. Because I think I've learned definitely in the last few months, people don't read things that you put in front of them. So if it is long and verbose, not everyone's a lawyer, and not everyone's going to spend the time. They don't. Sorry, they don't read if they aren't really making the decision to read it. Um, so that's really, really a great example. And what are some of the other things that you've seen companies do that? A, I guess would fall under the bucket of a bad policy because I, my understanding is that it's really important to have it written down. But there are any kind of other examples that you can give of um, bad policy decisions that a, a company can make when it comes to contributing to open source? Because I'd love the listeners, any anyone who is listening who does have an open source contribution strategy, and maybe they think, oh, this is this is fine, this is working. But I'd like them to kind of maybe see and open their mind a bit to see maybe it's not a be the best approach. Okay, well, there's a lot in, in that question. Um, um, and, you know, I think one of the first thing that you mentioned here is that a good policy is short. Um, and, and I think in general, sort of like every kind of agreement that you make between people should be as, which is what a policy is, right? Should be as short as and clear as possible. I mean, I'm... I'm um, a strong advocate of clear writing and of like no bullshit in general, right? And I just think that like pages and pages of like weird clauses that no one understands uh, in documents is just a, um, you know, a, a recipe for um, unhappiness, unclarity, and people just doing whatever it is that they want anyway, right? So this is something, by the way, that I see in large organizations that have extremely restrictive um, policies is that um, their engineers end up like um, running in circles around it, right? They found, they, they moonlight um, soft uh, the, on the open source code. They go back at home and they do it. Um, and, you know, from a legal perspective, that still puts the company in exactly the same bad position that they were, that they were trying to protect themselves from, except now they don't know about it, right? Like now it's done like in a way that they're not aware. So, um, I mean, I just wanted to be clear about this. Uh, uh, um, a good policy is a policy that matches what it is that you're trying to do from a business perspective, right? There's like no good policy and bad policy. There are good, you know, good, um, um, good business strategies and bad ones, right? But the, regardless, like a good, you know, a good policy is going to be bad if it's um, if it's matched like a bad business strategy, right? But the role of the policy is to match the, the strategy. Um, so depending on what it is that your company is doing, right? 
um, you will tend to be uh, more restrictive or, or, or less restrictive in what you allow your engineers to do. Um, if you're essentially um, selling IP, if you you know if your company is at a point in its in its uh, life where um, what's really valuable to it is to collect, say, patents and then license those to other organizations. A lot of old tech companies right now are in that position, and that's what they do, right? Then obviously, um, uh, in that case, well, you know, you don't really want to open source and give away those patents because then where's your revenue going to come from, right? So, you know, you want that kind of alignment. On the other hand, if you're a tech, you know, like a modern sort of like um, trend-setting tech company that is really focused on um, building, uh, you know, software, kind of like everything that is not part of like the core of what it is that you're selling, you should probably open source. There's going to be huge benefits for it. Um, so you want to have, you know, like a, a good policy is one that is going to uh, uh, clarify uh, and match uh, your business needs. And what's interesting, and I think like the, the sort of like uh, underlying layer to your question is how do you get there? Because that's the hard part. Yes. Right? Um, very often, um, uh, you will see sort of like a mismatch between what the policy is and what really sh would be good for the uh, organization. And that often comes um, for historical reasons. In general, uh, companies will tend to write down their policies when they sort of get a, a, a lawyer for the first time, a, a lawyer that looks at IP for the first time. And it turns out that uh, most IP lawyers actually don't really know open source that well, don't really understand the culture, don't understand the benefits. And kind of like just looking at this and like, whoa, 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 you know, like, why would we do like give away IP? This is valuable, right? Um, and so um, what generally tends to happen is an organization as it's, you know, it's young starts with uh, unwritten policies kind of like fairly flexible, right? And then as um, as it grows, suddenly like, uh, you know, legal shows up and legal sort of like locks everything down, right? Um, and, and really that's where the tension is, right? The tension is between essentially on one side, engineering who has, you know, whose role in the company is to innovate on technological aspects and sort of like create uh, new uh, or, or improved technological solutions for the company's business. And legal's role is there to sort of be really careful uh, that the company doesn't do anything silly and sort of like try to reduce risk, right? So how do you reduce risk to the maximum? You prevent everyone from doing everything, right? If you don't want to get run down by a car, stay home, right? Makes sense. So, sense. so, no, it doesn't, <laughs> right? I mean, like it doesn't because like the role of a company and the role of like a person is to live their life. A company is to like, you know, build a thriving business. And so that involves risk. And so once you understand that, you see that you have on one hand legal that wants to reduce risk. And on the other hand, engineering that wants to sort of like maximize its velocity and its ability to create new things and build value for the organization. And so you want to, um, that's why you want to tie everything down to back to, to the business goals, right? Because that gives everyone sort of like the same uh, destination and uh, helps 
um, uh, you know, find uh, sort of like chill engineering a bit to tell them, okay, you know, we can open source these things. But like, if we open source everything, that's going to be kind of problematic for the business. Right. And on the other hand, you can tell legal, well, yeah, okay, sure. Like we're going to protect this and we're going to be careful about, you know, like the security concerns that you're worried about and, um, you know, sort of avoid leaking stuff like, I don't know, credentials and put stuff in place for that. Um, but like, you're going to give us a bit more leeway so that we can actually do the things that are good for the business. And so it's this, this tension. And I think this tension is actually uh, very healthy, right? Um, it's, it's, it's how a company sort of, um, is in, in a, in the best position to sort of mitigate risk, but not let risk mitigation sort of like stifle everything, stifle, stifle everything. Um, so, so yeah, really, um, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's really part of the, most of the consulting work that I do really is about sort of like helping these um, um, conversations happen, right? Creating those channels. Um, and it's kind of um, difficult because, well, first of all, um, um, it's, you know, there's a, uh, in engineering, I mean, engineers don't like lawyers, right? Like that, that, that's, that's a thing. And lawyers kind of um, see engineers as sort of like, you know, a bit of like these crazy unruly children yes, exactly. <laughs> breaking things. Yeah. And right. exactly. There was that tension. And so, and that tension is interesting because, um, and, and I give a talk about this, like uh, very often it's interesting because literally like you know, engineering and legal are very different than lots of front, right? Um, uh, legal is really, uh, law is really a culture of like picking up the phone and talking like synchronously to people, right? And engineering is really a culture of like using IRC or, you know, Slack and, and doing like async written, right? So, ooh, you know, big, big, um, big, big, yeah, big issue here. Um, and then um, really also lawyering is really um, uh, about, um, you know, manager's schedule, right? We're like we have meetings, we have calls all day, right? And engineering is all about maker's schedule, right? Like give me these huge blocks. Don't expect me to answer an email like five times a day, right? So, you know, again, tension, different, different sort of like way of communicating, different ways of blocking time. Um, another important one is... Um, um, uh, yeah, well, there's the risk taking that we've mentioned, right? The role of uh, legal is conservative uh, and the role of engineering is innovative. Uh, what were the other ones now that there's a really, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, in general, engineering is very binary, right? I mean, now is AI, it's kind of changing a bit, but like, you know, we, th we think in like if else statements, right? It's like something is true or it's false. Uh, talk to a lawyer, like everything is like, the gray pain, area you know, <laughs> like what you know what's your risk tolerance that kind of stuff right and so i mean you can imagine that these two sort of like really uh, easily go head to head and like don't get anything done right lawyers come out you know <laughs> thinking oh god these engineers are like right um but if you actually sort of understand these two things sit in the middle know these two cultures you can create amazing outcomes where all of them come out super happy. It's like, oh, it turns out we can actually do all of the things we wanted to and even more, right? And on the other hand, they're like, oh, wow, it turns out like we're gonna have a lot less work now and we have a lot more clarity into like what are actually the big legal issues that we have to watch out for. So if you do it properly, like you can, like, you know, I hate the win-win thing. It's like, it, it sounds like, a, uh, uh, you know, like bad uh, CEO sort of like marketing, uh, but uh, you can wholly do that um, in that space.
Um, yeah, I can, I can give you, I'm going to give you one example. Actually, I, I mentioned um, earlier that um, we talked about the web platform tests. And when I joined W3C, um, the, um, the, um, the, um, the, the contributor license agreement that you had to sign to actually be able to contribute to that test suite was nuts. I, I don't have any other word for it. You, I mean, I can't remember. It was like 15 step. You had to upload your tests to a server of yours. Then you had to find the chair of the working group for which the test, the, the spec of the tests were. Then you had to email them and then they would get back to you. Then you had to like sign a, um, like fill in a form, print it, sign it, ship it. It was ridiculous, right? So, you know, I had looked at that and it was just like, I think this is kind of a bottleneck to get this off the ground. Like it's been in like five or six years, nothing has happened. Like, you know, maybe we should consider sort of like a bit streamlining that process. And so I had like this whole setup in my, in my head, right? Like using bots and like, you know, I went to the meeting um, and I actually by sort of by accident, like shut up at the beginning of the meeting. Uh, didn't say much. And so essentially, like, I let the lawyers talk and they were like, yeah, these are the things that we need. Would you be okay if we just sort of linked to a CLA in contributing.md? And I was just like, really, wait, wait, did I, did I hear that properly? <laughs> like, <laughs> can you please say this again? Um, and so literally, you know, we went from, uh, huge complicated mess to amazingly streamlined solution in 60 minutes um, because they had this sort of gray area of risks that they were comfortable with, right? That I, as an engineer, would have never envisioned as somewhere we could land on, right? It was literally... Um, more or less than any solution they had come up with. It was like in a, you know, a different sort of plane, <laughs> you know, and, and that was such a huge lesson for me because it's like, oh, like actually when you listen to, I mean, I know this sounds really stupid now, right? But when you listen to other people's needs, um, it's actually easier to fulfill them. You know, <laughs> like, wow, big surprise, right? Um, and so, yeah, so I think really that's really what's important is, um, to not go into conversations like these with pre preconceived ideas and to have, to try to build policies that work for everybody, right? And so everyone has to be reasonable too. I mean, I've been in positions in organizations where it's just like, yeah, I mean, that's not gonna cut it. You know, like the company just bought all of this software or, you know, bought all of these uh, patents to protect themselves against like this other player in the field. There's nothing, I mean, you know, sure, you'd love to be able to work on that stuff in the open, but that's not going to happen, right? Because, like, it's, you know, doesn't doesn't match, like, it's not going to work. So it's kind of like that two-way street, obviously. But if you do it properly, like, it can be a really fast two-way street, um, and it can, like, lead on to, like, this amazingly new highway that works really well. Sorry, I'm, I'm stretching that metaphor way too far. Way too far. <laughs> I, I think that definitely makes a lot of sense. It, it, people just have to communicate and, like you said, actually understand a person's needs. And I know we talked about yeah. lawyers and how they've got comp a completely different almost role and purpose of their job. And so their mentality is completely yeah. different. Just sit them both down in the room, kind of have the third party mediator and say, okay, what do you both need now? Let's come to an agreement and then put it into a short, concise policy. 
easy to read. It sounds like yep. sounds a bit too good to be true. <laughs> but um, that is all we have time for today. I really do thank you, Toby. It's been it's been great chatting, and it's been a lot of fun. And definitely, I think everyone listening is going to learn a lot, particularly about open source contribution strategies. So, if you're listening, uh, is there anything? Uh, where where can people find you? And is there any exciting events or anything coming up that you'd like to share with the audience? So I'm, I speak regularly. I'm actually giving us a, a sort of like a, a deeper dive into uh, this topic in a number of places. I don't know when the podcast is going to be out, um, but I'm talking at OspoCon about this. And uh, I think later at um, Open Source Experience in Paris um, also on this topic. Um, so, um, and, and I have, I have uh, videos of that talk that you can find on my website. And I think that the easiest actually would be if you're interested in these topics for you to go at speaking.unlockopen.com. Um, and you'll find lots of, lots of, uh, resources there. I'm also on Twitter, just at Toby. Um, and I write on medium also using at Toby. So yeah, at Toby and speaking.unlockopen.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your time and thanks to everyone who's listening. Thank you very much. And this, this was great. And if you like what you listen to today, then check us out on YouTube. Uh, like, subscribe, but also leave a review if you're watching this on Apple Podcasts. It really does help uh, get the word out there. So thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Toby. And until next time, see you all.